Well, if we haven't met, my name's Clayton. I'm the pastor here of the City Church. And got a couple of announcements for you before we dive into the message today. First of all, uh, if you're watching online right now, man, we are pumped. We're honored that you're joining us. Uh, and, and we want to just challenge you and invite you, especially those of you that are City Church people, uh, to come back like as, as soon as possible. We've added a service. So we've got 9, 10, 15, 11.30 to try to spread some people out a little bit. Uh, but this church online that, that we've experienced over the last six months or so, it was never meant and could never be a replacement for the body of Christ. It, it's been a, a good thing to have to lean on as a kind of like a crutch uh, for a little while, uh, but the body of Christ is never meant to be done or to be experienced from the comfort of your living room and your recliner. That's just not the way it works. Uh, when you read through the New Testament, we're supposed to love one another, pray for one another, serve one another, be there for one another, challenge one another, keep each other account. I mean, you just can't do that on your own from your living room. And so we know some of you have been remaining home uh, due to uh, health concerns and things like that and totally understand that. And so I just wanna challenge you to consider and to pray about maybe when that season might be over for you and with God's wisdom, when it would be time for you to return and join us. I was hearing about a lady a week ago who had been staying home like many people during Corona and watching online. And she just felt like she began to drift, wasn't really uh, connected with uh, the body of Christ within her relationship with God. And she kind of thought, I think that, that church online could be a replacement, but she was back last week. And, and she just said, man, I realized that could never be a replacement. I'm glad we have that, but it could never be uh, a long term, very long term at all. It's okay for a short season, but we do church online and podcasts and things like that uh, for, to be a front door for people to, to learn more about our church when you're sick or when you're out of town to kind of stay caught up. Uh, but it's never meant to be a replacement for your involvement in the body of Christ. And so definitely wanna challenge you to come back as soon as possible. Secondly, we are starting in the book of Colossians. We did on Friday, I believe, in our daily devotionals. And so great time to jump in and read the scripture with us. If you don't read your Bible, jump on our app this week, the City Church Lubbock. Click daily devotionals, and uh, now's a great time, just like any week, to start reading the word of God each day. And so we'd love to invite you to do that. Well, possibly the most epic battle between good and evil in the history of the world is between these two people right here, Jim and Dwight, right? Uh, you've got Jim, uh, Dwight, they work across from each other at Dunder Mifflin Paper Company. Uh, obviously, we're talking about the office here, but, but these guys are arch nemesis, right? They're, they're, they're rivals, they're enemies, they don't like each other, they annoy each other, they, they frustrate each other. And, and so uh, Dwight says that Jim is his enemy and Dwight wants to destroy his enemies, right? Uh, Jim is just totally annoyed and, and entertained by Dwight, and so he's constantly pulling pranks on Dwight. And I, I love to watch the interaction between these two all throughout this series. And what's interesting though, if you've watched the whole series is that as much as these guys dislike each other, right? And, and are enemies and uh, pull pranks on one another and want to see the other one's downfall, right? I mean, as much as we see that play out throughout the series, at the end of the series, Jim is Dwight's best man in his wedding or uh, his bestest schminch. And you know what I'm talking about if you've seen the series, right? He's his best man in his wedding. And so it's just amazing to watch the power of connection, the power of proximity, the power of relationship, and the way that can change people's hearts towards each other, the way that can 
almost work, that time together, that connection, that closeness can be a bridge and can change people's hearts, even the worst of enemies. Do you know the scripture is very clear? Jesus is very clear. How we treat our enemies says a lot about what's going on in our heart. It says a lot about where we are spiritually. So Republicans, the way you treat and talk about that Democrat or post about that Democrat and the way they believe and the way they vote, it actually says a lot about what's in your heart, not theirs. It says a lot about where you're at spiritually. Democrats, those, those evil Republicans, the way that you talk about them and post about them, it says a lot about what's going on in your heart, not theirs. And the scripture makes that clear. The way we treat our enemies, people that we don't like, people that frustrate us, people that annoy us, people that are our sworn enemies, right? Our political rivals, the way that we treat them and talk about them in today, today's world, the way that we post about them, it says a lot about what's going on in our hearts, not theirs. Paul said this, we saw this last week in Galatians chapter five, verse 15. But if you were always biting and devouring one another, and that's so indicative of our culture today, right? This toxic environment that we're in and, and probably is hopefully not, but probably is only going to get worse over the next couple of months. But Paul says, if you're always biting and devouring one another, watch out, beware of destroying one another. Paul says, if you're constantly biting and devouring each other, you're going to destroy one another. And that's what's happening in our country today. We are destroying our country because we can't stop biting and devouring one another. We're doing the same thing in the church. Christians are biting and devouring one another and it's destroying ourselves, our churches, our city, our country. This has become normal life for citizens in our country. But as followers of Jesus, you and I are called to live and to act differently. We are called to conduct ourselves in a different manner, different than citizens of this earth. Because you and I, watch this, as Paul would say in Philippians chapter one, are citizens of heaven. Above all, follower of Jesus, Christian, Paul says, you must live as citizens of heaven. You're a citizen of heaven first and foremost. And so last week we, we talked about this, but we are citizens of the city of our God. One day the Bible says, Revelation chapter 20, you go to the very end, you go to the end of the book. One day Jesus is going to return. He's going to set up his kingdom here on this earth. And, and it says that one day there's going to be a city that's going to come down out of heaven to earth. It's going to be a brand new city, a new Jerusalem on a new earth, all things, all the old things are gonna be gone. They're gonna pass away. A new city, the new Jerusalem is gonna come out of heaven down to earth, a new earth, and that's where we will live forever. That's heaven, actually. It's a new city, new earth, new bodies with King Jesus forever. And so it's gonna be a lot more familiar maybe than you ever really thought. But the writer of Hebrews says, we, we are citizens of the city of our God, this city that, that God is preparing for you and I as followers of Jesus. That, that's, where, that, that's where our citizenship lies, in the city of our God. And the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 11 that people of faith are looking forward to this city. They count themselves as aliens and strangers here on this earth, and they're looking forward to the city of our God that's going to come down out of heaven to earth. That's the city we're looking forward to. That's the city where our citizenship, above all, lies. We are citizens of heaven as followers of Jesus. And then Paul says this, that means you should conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. As citizens of heaven, we are to conduct ourselves differently than citizens of this earth. 
We are to conduct ourselves, Paul says, in a manner worthy of the gospel. So what does that look like? What does that mean? Well, here's what we're saying in this series, that citizens of heaven, your heavenly citizenship always informs your earthly citizenship. So in every way, when it comes to your politics and when it comes to the way that we conduct ourselves as citizens of heaven on, on this earth, how do we represent our heavenly citizenship to our earthly fellow citizens, right? And so it's our heavenly citizenship that always informs, it teaches, it guides, it directs our earthly citizenship because Paul says above all, first and foremost, we're citizens of heaven first. And then Paul says, that's going to impact your conduct, the way you're a citizen here on this earth. So how are we to act? What is this different way? What is this way of conducting ourselves that's worthy of the gospel? Well, last week we looked in John chapter one, we went to Jesus. It's, it's him that we're supposed to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Jesus. So we went to John chapter one. And you might remember, we talked about how Jesus came from heaven. He took on flesh. He made his dwelling among us. And then verse 14, you remember what it says Jesus was full of? Two words. What's the first word? Starts with the G. Grace and second word starts with the T. Truth, right? Grace and truth. Jesus was full. John 1 says Jesus was full of grace and truth. And so last week we said it's not either or. It's both and. It's not grace or truth. It's not compassion or conviction. Jesus was full of grace and truth, both and. And so we said as citizens of heaven, as followers of Jesus, then it only makes sense that you and I would be a people of both and. Well, today we're gonna look at what does it mean to be a people of grace? Next week, we'll see people of truth. So today, as citizens of heaven, we're looking at what does it mean to be citizens? People of grace. So if you got your Bible, go to John chapter one, rather Mark two, sorry. John one was last week, Mark chapter two. If you got your Bible, the verses will be on the screen. Uh, this is a great time to jump on our app, the City Church Lubbock, follow along in the message notes. Uh, the verses, the points will all be there and you can fill in the blank with the words in all caps like grace right here. All right, Mark chapter two, starting in verse 13. Let's look at the life of Jesus. How do we become and live as people of grace? Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake and a large crowd came to him and he began to teach them. And as he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Now let's stop there for a second. You gotta understand what's happening here, just the culture of this day. Um, the Jews hated tax collectors and Jesus was a Jew, but they hated tax collectors because they were often their fellow Jews who had betrayed them, had turned their back on them, the people of God, and were collecting taxes from their own people and giving it to the occupying Roman government, their enemies. And so they, they hated tax collectors. You know, well, nothing's changed. I don't like tax collectors either, right? But, but they especially hated them because they saw them as traitors to their own people. And because these tax collectors would often skim off the top, take more than they had to, and pocket some of the money for themselves. So, so the Jews, especially religious people, saw the tax collectors as the worst of the worst, right? They, they, were, they were evil, they were scum. These are terrible, terrible people. And you might say the same thing about the person who votes differently than you, right? Who believes differently than you. They're, they're terrible people. How could they believe that? How could they think like that? This is the way the Jews viewed tax collectors. Now watch what happens. <laughs> 
to Levi, the tax collector, Jesus walks right up to him and says, follow me. What? Are you joking, Jesus? That's a, that's a tax collector. What, what, what are you doing, Jesus? Why are you inviting someone who's not like you, doesn't believe like you, doesn't behave like you, doesn't vote like you? Why are you inviting someone who's not like you, our enemy, Jesus? Why are you inviting our enemy into a relationship with you, to follow you. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. Now watch what happens next. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, he not only invites him to follow him, he's going to eat with him now. He's going over to his house to hang out with him, and it gets even worse. He's having dinner at Levi's house, and many of Levi's tax collector buddies and other sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many of these kind that followed him. There were many, some translations say, the, these sinners that were eating with Jesus are the, they, they were the disreputable sinners. Like in other words, they were the most famous of sinners. They were the famous sinners of Jesus's day are eating with Jesus, hanging out with Jesus, partying with Jesus, the worst sinners, the most famous of them all. And they're hanging out with Jesus. I don't know about you. This should make it probably if you're a religious person, you're a church person, it should make you a little uncomfortable. It does me. So I, I, I'm, I'm guessing, I'm just assuming it makes you a little uncomfortable. The most famous sinners of Jesus's day, the people most not like him, he's eating dinner with them. He's partying with them. He's hanging out with them. When the teachers of the law, these are the religious people, the Pharisees, these are, this is a, a religious group within Judaism. They're the, the teachers and the leaders. When they saw him eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why, why is Jesus doing this? Why is your leader, why is Jesus eating, watch this, with tax collectors and sinners? Some translations say, some of the other gospel accounts, why does he eat with such scum? That's how they viewed these people. The scum of the earth. The worst of the worst. These are our enemies. These are the people that frustrate us, that annoy us. We don't like them. We can't stand them. We don't want to be around them. But watch this. And here's the first thing you got to understand about being a people of grace is that Jesus took sinners to dinner. Jesus took sinners to dinner. He's eating with Levi, the tax collector, his tax collector buddies, other famous sinners. Jesus took sinners to to dinner. He took people that weren't like him to dinner. He took his enemies to dinner. That's Jesus. You should feel uncomfortable right now because Jesus ate dinner and was close to people who did not believe the way that he did, that did not vote the way that he did, that did not see the world the way that he did. And he was in relationship with them. He was connected to them. He was close to them. And to make matters worse, he didn't expect them to clean up their lives before he'd be around them, before he would be in relationship with them, before they could follow him. It wasn't, hey, do this, do this, do this, do this. Stop doing this, stop doing this, stop doing this. And if you do all those things and you stop doing all these things, then you can follow me. Then we'll have dinner. Then we'll hang out. Then we'll be in relationship. Then we'll be close. It wasn't like that at all. Jesus walked up to Levi, literally in the midst of his sin and said, follow me. 
You're not gonna clean yourself up. You're not gonna change anything right now. You're just gonna follow me. Jesus took sinners to dinner. And the religious people hated it. Religious people always kind of squirm with the grace of God. Oftentimes not realizing or understanding how much they've needed it. But it always makes, and I'll put myself in there, it always makes church people like me who've grown up in church, it can always make us squirm a little bit because it just feels a little uncomfortable. Religious people expected distance from sinners, not dinner with sinners. Religious people want distance between them and the people not like them. Religious people want distance between them and the people who don't vote like them, who don't believe like they do. Religious people want distance. And we see this with the Pharisees, expecting Jesus to have more distance between him and the sinners of his day, not dinner with the sinners of his day. They wanted more distance. They expected more distance. They were shocked. There wasn't more distance between Jesus and the sinners. In Luke chapter nine, it says this about Jesus on his way to Jerusalem, that Jesus set out to Jerusalem and he went through Samaria. This is interesting in Luke chapter nine. And if you don't understand the context of the situation, the culture of the day, you would totally miss this. But Jews always went around Samaria to get to Jerusalem. They took the long way. They, they wouldn't go through Samaria, which would have been the shorter way to Jerusalem. It would have been the easier way. They went the long way. They actually went the harder way, the longer route, all the way around Samaria to get to Jerusalem. Why? Because they hated Samaritans. There was such animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans. And you kind of see this play out when Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan and he, he tells a story which just flies in the face of all the, the, the Jewish people and the religious people, right? Because he's talking about this guy that's injured on the side of the road and, and the religious people are going around him and don't want to have anything to do with him. But then Jesus kind of elevates and lifts up the Samaritan, the good Samaritan who actually helps out his neighbor who's struggling. And they can't stand it. They, don't, they, don't, they wanted to kill him for stories like that because there was animosity. The, 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 the Samaritans were their enemies, and so what's interesting is when almost everyone else, anyone else, any other Jewish person would have gone around Samaria to keep the right distance between them and the evil scum Samaritans, Jesus went right through Samaria and route to Jerusalem and he encountered a woman at a well. You remember this story? He encounters this woman at the well and he begins to ask her where her husband is and she says, oh, I, don't, I don't have a husband. And Jesus says, yeah, yeah you're right. You've had many husbands. And, you're not, and the man you're living with right now isn't your husband. And he talks with her and invites her to follow him, to leave her life of sin. And she goes back to her hometown and she starts telling everybody, come meet this man, he changed my life. He saw into my soul. He saw everything I'd ever done. He told me everything I'd ever done, but he changed my life. Come meet this man who changed my life. Jesus went through Samaria because he didn't want distance between him and sinners. He didn't want there to be any distance between him and people not like him. Anyone else would have gone around it because religious people expect and want 
distance. Secondly, religious people usually condemn sinners. That's what we see in this story. They, the religious people are, are calling out these sinners as if they aren't ones. And they're saying, why are you eating with those scum? They were condemning them. In Luke chapter nine, Jesus's followers, James and John do the exact same thing. They're going through, again, they're going through Samaria. They go through a village that rejects them. And James and John ask Jesus, Jesus, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and destroy these people? And what does Jesus do? What does Jesus say? In Luke chapter nine, it says that Jesus rebuked them for their desire to destroy their enemies, for their desire to defeat their enemies. That, I mean, but that's, that's what winners do, right? Winners want to defeat their enemies. They want to destroy their enemies. I don't know about you. I wanted to destroy Texas last night, okay? And so I was so excited that we were beating them so bad. With a few minutes left, I actually posted Wreckham with three minutes left in that game. And you know the rest of that story. Winners want to destroy their enemies. They want to defeat their enemies. But Jesus wasn't your traditional winner. Jesus didn't want to destroy his enemies. He didn't want to even defeat his enemies. Jesus wasn't your traditional winner. Jesus said, you're going to pray for your enemies. You're going to love your enemies. You're going to serve your enemies. You're going to bless your enemies. That's how a follower of Jesus, that's how a citizen of heaven treats their enemies. They love them. They bless them. They pray for them. Watch this. Jesus won by dying for people, not defeating them. Jesus won by dying for his enemies, not defeating his enemies. Did you know that you were an enemy of God? Romans chapter five, Colossians chapter one, it makes it clear in your sin. And before you gave your life to Jesus, you were an enemy of God. And, and Jesus died at the hands of his enemies, dying for his enemies. And he still prayed while he was dying at the hands of his enemies for his enemies. He still prayed, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That is grace. It's receiving what you did not earn, what you do not deserve. That's grace. It's uncomfortable. Because everything in us tells us that people get what they deserve. But the grace of God says, no, 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 you don't, you don't get what you deserve. You actually get what you don't deserve. And that's grace. So Jesus won by dying for people, not defeating them. Watch this. Jesus didn't execute condemnation like the religious people were doing. He extended compassion. He extended grace. And so as citizens of heaven, followers of Jesus, watch this, it just makes sense. Citizens don't execute condemnation, they extend compassion. Jesus didn't execute condemnation. In John chapter three, Jesus said, I didn't come to condemn you, I came to save you because you stand condemned already. 
Because of your sin, there's a fine for your sin, eternity separated from God. You are condemned to hell already because of your sin. So I'm not coming to condemn a condemned person. I'm coming to save a condemned person. We don't condemn condemned people. We're here to share the good news about Jesus with condemned people that they might be saved. We're not, the about, we're not about the defeat of our enemies. No, we're about laying our lives down so that our enemies can win just like Jesus did. That's the gospel. Citizens don't execute condemnation, they extend compassion. How do we do that? Well, just like Jesus did, through relationship, through connection, through our presence, through dinner. That's how Jesus did. That's how Jesus extended compassion. He, he extended relationship. He extended compassion that wasn't based on performance. And that's grace. Grace is getting what your performance doesn't deserve. Because our performance, the scripture says, deserves death. But grace is getting what you didn't perform for. That's grace. And so how can you tell if you're living as a citizen of earth or a citizen of heaven? Well, I think this passage makes several things clear. First of all, you, you know you're living as a citizen of heaven if you're more about dinner than distance. Like if you can be in a relationship with people who don't agree with you, who don't vote like you, who don't believe the same way that you do, or if you're more about putting distance between you and people that don't see things the same way that you do, that vote differently than you do. Citizens of heaven are about dinner. They want, they're about relationship, connection, in spite of performance, in spite of the disagreement, in spite of not seeing things the same way. Christians will still engage and be in relationships. That's why citizens of heaven are to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, the good news about Jesus. Next, citizens of heaven are more about compassion than they are condemnation. We extend compassion. We're not executing condemnation. Next, citizens of heaven are more about losing than they are winning. You might say, wait, what, did I hear that right? Like, what, what are you trying to say? Yeah, we, we care more about laying our life down, losing our life for the sake of Jesus and for the sake of others, just like Jesus did. We're, we're more about losing our lives for their sake than we are about winning at all costs. We're okay with losing in the same way that Jesus, Jesus wasn't in it to win it, not in the traditional sense. Jesus won by dying. He won by giving himself up. And then finally, next, you see here, if you're more about a person than politics, if you're more about politics than you are about a person, then you're living as a citizen of earth. Citizens of heaven care more about people than they do their own politics. Citizens of heaven care more about a person, the person, Jesus, than they do about politics. They talk more about Jesus. They post more about Jesus. They're more excited about Jesus, a person, than they are about their politics or their party. Tim Keller, popular, well-known pastor, author, theologian, said this, one of the many, many reasons for the decline of the church going and religion in the U.S. is that increasingly Christians are seen as highly partisan foot soldiers for political movements. This is both divisive within the church and discrediting out in the world. Many Christians publicly disown and attack other believers who share the same beliefs in Christ, but who are voting for the wrong candidate. They seem to feel a more common bond with people of the same politics than with people of the same faith. 
when the church as a whole is no longer seen as speaking to questions that transcend politics, and when it is no longer united by a common faith that transcends politics, then the world will see strong evidence that Nietzsche, Freud, and Marx were right. That religion is really just a cover for people wanting to get their way in the world. That's what happens when we're more passionate about politics, parties, and platforms than we are about a person, the person of Jesus. So what do we do? Well, we intro people to who, not something to do. We're talking about a person. We talk more about Jesus than we do about what you need to do or stop doing. Jesus didn't walk up to Levi and say, hey, you gotta do this, this, and this, and stop doing this, this, and this, and then you can follow me. No, 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 he just said, hey, I'm Jesus. He's introducing himself. He's inviting him to follow him. He's inviting him to relationship with himself. He's introducing him to a person, to himself, not something to do or to stop doing. And so as citizens of heaven, we've gotta be more passionate about a person, Jesus. We need to introduce people to Jesus, not to our platform. So watch this. So then we introduce people to a person, not to a platform. We're more passionate about a person and Jesus than we are about our politics, our party, our platform, because grace is a person. Grace is a person. It's a relationship in spite of performance. It's a relationship in spite of politics. That's grace. But if you're reading this verse, this passage, and it makes you uncomfortable, or maybe you're reading this passage and you're loving it. You're like, Jesus, get them, get them, Jesus. Okay. Well, if you keep reading into the next verse, the spots are going to switch. If you loved what was happening in the first, these first few verses, the next part's going to make you a little bit uncomfortable. If you've been uncomfortable with these verses, then this next verse, you're going to be like, yeah, get them, Jesus. It's going to switch now. And that's the tension in grace. We talked about tension last week. To be a people of both end means living with it requires tension. And here comes the tension. Watch this, verse 17, Mark chapter two. On hearing this, these religious people, right? Saying, why are you eating with these scum? Why are you eating with these sinners? And on hearing this, Jesus responds to them. And he says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous. I've come for sinners. Now, if you're at this dinner and you're Levi, one of his tax collector friends, and you're here with Jesus and you hear Jesus say to the religious people, he's getting them. And you're like, yeah, get them, Jesus. Jesus, man, we can follow him. He's okay with my life. He doesn't care about any of the things that I do. Jesus is affirming of my lifestyle. He's not concerned about what I do or don't do, right? And then Jesus says this, I've, I haven't come to call those who think they're righteous. I, I've come to call those who are sinners. And if you're Levi or you're one of his friends, you gotta be thinking, oh, whoa, 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 wait a second here. So <laughs> you came for sinners and you're hanging out with me. So Jesus, are you saying that I'm a sinner? You see, here's what you've gotta understand. Jesus took sinners to dinner. But at the same time, Jesus wasn't afraid to call a sinner a sinner. And if they had said, Jesus, as you can possibly imagine, Jesus, are you saying I'm a sinner? Like you're not okay with everything in my life? You're not affirming of all the choices that I've made in my life? Like, are you saying I'm a sinner? And Jesus said, yeah, I'm saying you're a sinner. You might be here today and you're like, hey, Pastor Clayton, are you, are you saying 
that I'm a sinner? Like, are you saying that there's some things in my life that, that God doesn't approve of? Are you saying that God doesn't affirm and approve of all the choices that I've made in my life? Are you saying I'm a sinner? And I would say, no, I'm not saying that. Jesus is. Jesus is saying that. Jesus is saying, you're a sinner. And yes, Jesus took sinners to dinner, but Jesus wasn't afraid to call a sinner a sinner. You see, the scripture says, Romans 3, verse 23, all have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. All have fallen short of God's standard to have a relationship with him and to go to heaven when we die. Every one of us have. You have. I have. We've all sinned. And the bad news, if that wasn't bad enough, it gets worse. The bad news is there's a fine to be paid. When you break man's law, you pay man's fine. When you break God's law, you pay God's fine. And God's fine for sin is eternity separated from him in a place called hell, where you are eternally punished for your sin. It doesn't get much worse than that, but that's the truth. But the great news is that we have a gracious God who wants to give us what we did not earn and what we do not deserve. And so he demonstrated his love for us. Romans 5, 8 says it like this. He demonstrated his love for us in this, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He came and died on the cross at the hands of his enemies for his enemies. In other words, he died on the cross to pay your fine, to pay the fine his enemies owed. He paid their fine for sin. He paid your fine for sin. And so the scripture says, if you give your life to Jesus, when you trust in Jesus' payment of your, of your fine through his death on the cross, your sin is totally forgiven. You're made right with God. And you can know for sure that when you die, you're going to heaven. Not when you've been good enough because it's not about performance. Grace isn't about a performance. It's about a person. The scripture says, Ephesians 2, verse eight and nine, salvation is on reward for the good things that we've done. Good people don't go to heaven forgiven people do. And you're forgiven of your sin when you give your life to Jesus who died in your place for your sin. And so if you're here today, I want you to know the scripture says in Romans 10 verse nine, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved if you will give your life to Jesus. You might say, well, I've got, a, I've got all these things wrong in my life. I've, I've messed up. I've screwed up. I know you have. So have I. You might say, well, I, I, but I've got to fix some of these things before I come and follow Jesus, before I give my life to Jesus. No, you don't. You don't clean yourself up. You don't put yourself back together. Jesus will do that in you and through you and for you as you follow him. That's why he came up to Matthew and said, follow me. I will change your life from the inside out. It's not stop doing this and learn to do this. It's follow me and I will change you from the inside out. That's why he invited Matthew to follow him. That's why he invited the other famous sinners to follow him. Because if you follow Jesus, you come as you are, but you don't stay that way. Jesus will change you from the inside out. And so I would invite you to give your life to Jesus today. Jump on our app, fill out our connect form, check that box that says you're giving your life to Jesus today. We'd love to know about that decision and celebrate that with you. But here's what happens when you've experienced the grace of God. You want to extend the grace of God. When you've experienced the forgiveness of your sin, you can't help but extend forgiveness. When you've experienced compassion from God, you can't help but extend compassion. 
People who've experienced grace extend grace. And so as citizens of heaven, watch this, it's our big idea today. Citizens extend compassion anchored to conviction. We extend compassion because we've experienced compassion, but it's always anchored to conviction. Compassion and conviction, grace and truth. It's not either or, it's both and. Compassion and conviction will change your life forever. But compassion with no conviction, compassion without conviction, grace but, but no truth, that's meaningless. That's not gonna change your life, it's not gonna transform you. It's hollow and deceptive at best. And you won't experience the satisfaction and joy of God's best for your life because experiencing God's best means doing things God's way. If you're going to experience God's best, it means doing things God's way. That's compassion and conviction. And we as citizens of heaven are to be a people of both and grace and truth, compassion and conviction because grace without truth is meaningless. Like we said, it's hollow, it's deceptive, it's empty. It won't transform your life, but grace with truth, watch this, is medicine. I'm sick, you're sick, our city is sick, our country is sick, and we need a doctor, a doctor that's full of grace and truth, that will heal us, that will put us back together, that will transform us from the inside out. I need grace and truth. You need grace and truth. Our city, our country needs grace and truth. Now let's pray that we could be those citizens of heaven that conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. God, we pray right now in Jesus' name, knowing that we are sick, that our city, our country is sick, that you would enable us by the Holy Spirit's power to supernaturally be a people, citizens of grace and truth. And God, I pray that right now you would overwhelm us, you would over, just overcome us, God, that, that we might experience right now in this moment just the overwhelming power of grace and compassion, that we might be people that can't help but extend that grace and that compassion to other people. God, I pray that it would be true of us like it was of Jesus, that we take sinners to dinner, and at the same time, we aren't afraid to call a sinner a sinner. Would you help us to do that? and to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. We pray that in Jesus' name.